0: The book of Galatians chapter 4, and we're going to look at just a couple verses in there this morning for a few minutes, Galatians 4. Again, if you have notes, they're in the bulletin. Otherwise, if you don't have any, uh, I should say, then raise your hand. The ushers will hand that to you. I was reading a story about an individual. She was giving her experience about how she was in the Christmas season, so going so frantically, trying to get everything done over those last couple days. And she, like 63% of Americans, said that they still have shopping to do on Christmas Eve day. And this woman was in such a frantic pace that she knew she needed to get some cards out. She hadn't done that, so she ran to the store real quick. She knew she had 49 different people to send cards to, so she bought a pack of 50, ran homes, wrote those out real quick, the addresses, signed the cards without reading it, put it in the envelope, stamped it, and got it in the mail, and ran off and did her other busy things to finish up that Christmas Eve day. It was the next day that she is sitting there and kind of relaxing and saying, okay, I got everything done, everything's in place. And then she noticed the 50th card that she had picked up, and she thought, I should have read it through, so I'll take a moment and read it through. And she opened it, and here she was, enjoying, thinking she had everything done, and then she read what, she, what was inside that card. It read this. This card is just to say a little gift is on the way. <laughs> so 49 people she committed to. Moral of the story is this. We need to read things carefully, don't we? What we sign, what we pick up, and I'm afraid that many of us, we gloss over the Christmas story. We read the Luke 2 account, and many of us memorize it. We heard it as children. It's been in plays, it's been in dramas. But all of a sudden, what do we do? What do we do when all of a sudden we say, okay, let's, let's get a real glimpse of things. And I would invite you to take a passage with me that really gives, it's not the Christmas story itself, but it gives a lot of detail, good detail about Jesus Christ and His coming. It's Galatians chapter 4. The story in Galatians 4 is a little bit different than most of us are familiar with. What's happening in that text is in that passage in Galatians, they're writing and they're talking about adding something to Jesus. The people are going to church and they're being told you should believe in Jesus plus something else. You should believe in Jesus and still get baptized or you know do good works or whatever. And they're getting an additional type of an idea that we see in many churches today. That we talk about Jesus and His sacrifice and His goodness and His greatness, but then we go to church and say we have to add something to it on top of the work of Jesus Christ. And the writer is writing and saying oh no, 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 no. You don't have to add anything to the work of Jesus Christ and he's giving a whole discussion here about the greatness of Jesus Christ and the, and the work of Jesus Christ, how it is sufficient to get us to heaven. And in those two verses I want to look at in the middle of this discussion, verses 4 and 5 and a little bit in verse 6, he's talking about the great Jesus. He's describing him and there are some little phrases in revealing in this text about his coming to the earth as he mentions it, how great Jesus Christ is. Read, follow along as I read it out loud in, uh, in Galatians 4. You follow as I read in verse 4. But when When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Jesus Christ. That doesn't seem like a whole lot. And in fact, some of you might look and say, hey, what's this doing on a Christmas message? But it's talking about His coming. And it describes Jesus Christ in several ways several facts in fact I want to point out are these it tells us that Jesus Christ is great because he has power over history There's the phrase, in the fullness of time. It's a phenomenal phrase when you think about it. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. Think about what he means by that. I know that the Bible indicates that God had predicted the arrival of Jesus Christ. There are multiple passages. Just as a couple for a selection this morning, let's just remind yourselves of the one that frequently we hear, that it talks about a child is born to us, the Son is given, the government will be upon His shoulders. talks about His name, being called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We read as well in Daniel who writes, in giving some of the time frame, he talks about until the Anointed One, the Ruler would come, and then the Anointed One would be put to death. It's very clear God predicted many times, those are just two, that Jesus would come. But what Galatians 4 is talking about is not only that God predicted, but God prearranged. God took control of history, and He worked out all the circumstances so that when Jesus came, it was the best time, it was the most convenient time by God's plan in all of human history, the best time possible. If you were to go to any kind of a Christian school, and they were going to a college that is, and they were going to give you a basic course in history, they would take you to a history of civ course, 101 or whatever the number would be. And you would, if you're going to have any kind of good material, they're going to talk about history being his story. And they're going to talk about, and they're going to point out to you this very, very basic facts of history. That when Jesus came, it was the ripest, it was the most mature time in all of history for the arrival of the Son in just a few ways. Thinking about cultures and societies and how God operated and maneuvered and put things together. Just for instance, the the Jews and what had happened to them historically. How at the time when Jesus comes, they had been dispersed throughout the world several hundred years before. When they were dispersed, they took with them their Bible. They took with them their religion. And they had sown the seed of monotheism. In a culture, in a land, in all that Mediterranean world where polytheism had been predominant and people were being exposed to this idea of a one God. They had established their synagogues. They had, they had taken their culture, their religion, and they had exposed the world unintentionally. They weren't zealous evangelists, but they had taken and exposed, and, exposed the world to their culture and to their beliefs and so they come to the period of, of Jesus' arrival. The Jews have permeated all of society. A number of them are back in the land. They have already returned. They have already restructured. They're under Roman rule, and they're being protected by the Romans. In fact, they had a lot of privileges to practice their religion that are going to be lost in that for 100 years or so after Christ. But at the time when he arrives, the seed of the word has spread out unlike any other time in human history. When you think about how the world was influenced by the Greeks just from that 300 year period B.C. on, when Alexander took and they conquered the world, you and I would look and say, oh that's just an happenstance in history. It was in the fullness of time that God allowing those things to evolve and to develop, that Alexander took his Greek troops and they maneuvered quickly throughout the known world, conquered all of what we would call the western world. And with them they took their culture and they permeated the world with the Greek language that became the common language. The language that, like now, if you were to go to many foreign countries in this year, in this in this era of time, many of the foreigners would want to learn English because it's the commercial tongue around the world. Well, back in Bible days, the commercial tongue became, became Greek. It was well known. Most people spoke two languages, their native tongue and they spoke Greek. Why? Because over those 300 years before Christ came, the language had spread. The philosophies, the ideas that the Greeks spread that other nations hadn't, hadn't really planted, but they planted seeds of thinking and philosophy and asking these important questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why am I here? And the Greeks got the people's thinking throughout those cultures of those very basic thoughts that are, that are essential for you and me to figure out, okay, before me and my standing before God? Who am I? Why am I here? Well, you know, what's going on? And so the Greeks have, have influenced all the world in the education and the languages and the commerce so that by the time Jesus comes on the scene, His truth is presented. He dies, buries, resurrects, and sends his disciples out. They are going where there's already synagogues. There's some exposure to the Old Testament scriptures where there's monotheism is is being debated and being discussed. And existence and why we are here are being talked about in the circles and in the hubs and in the streets and in the schools so that as they carry the Word of God, they can carry it with the Greek language to any different community, any different society, and communicate in that common tongue the second language of most people and talk about the discussions that are being brought up and discussed at that time. There's another group of people that came on the scene historically, that influenced that time to make it the best of times for Christ and His message to come. The Romans come in. They conquered all of what we know as the Western world. There they are, they're, they're putting in roads in order to control their, their realms and their dominions. And it makes for travel. It makes for mail. It makes for for commerce to really prosper. It makes and involves the opportunity for the gospel to spread throughout the world where there's roads, where there's protection, where there is safety, where the independent little countries aren't fighting so much anymore. They're all under Rome and they can travel from one province to another province and carry the gospel. This was the ripest of times. This was the best of times. This was what God in his and his providence was doing. He was controlling history and making things work out so that everything came together, not coincidentally, but providentially for the best time for Jesus to arrive so that when he gave us life, when he resurrected, the news could spread throughout the world. And yes, we know that there was problems as they spread, that the world reacted with persecution, but it was the best of times to get the scriptures out. God is in control of history. It is His story. It is not just evolving coincidental ideas. We need to stop and think that the Christ who we worship this day, whose birth we talk about, He's in control of history. He's in control of national history. He knows and maneuvers and it's not just for His first coming. He is in control of history, leading things and developing things and and moving things to come to the point of the next climax in history, that is his second coming. In the fullness of times. And just like that, birth was predicted. But they didn't know the exact moment. So his second coming is predicted. He is arranging things. We don't know the exact moment, but we need to be ready for it. And this just de- demonstrates to me one more time God's greatness. Jesus Christ is is all we need why? Because he's in control of history. He also wants to be in control of your history. Which leads me to another thought. That not only is he great because of his power over history, but he's great according to this text because of his presence in heaven. The passage says that in the fullness of time he says God sent forth his son made of a woman. The implication is that Jesus Christ is with God. That Jesus Christ was pre-existent before he birthed. Before he came to this world. That would explain why Abraham talks to the Lord. To the Lord God when he comes and visits outside the tent. It would explain why Joshua talks and calls the angel of the Lord who appears to him, he calls him L-O-R-D capital letters, Lord Yahweh. It explains why Samson's parents recognize that this is more than an angel that appeared but this is a Christophany, an appearance of Christ. Because Christ was pre-existent before birth. Now There are some of our our fellow citizens here in America who are going to say, oh yeah, that's not unusual because you and me and all of us in this room, we were in heaven before we were sent into a body of a tiny baby. We were in heaven. We had an existence that was everlasting. That's not true. That isn't biblically true. You and I weren't around before we were conceived. And so we didn't have, like Christ, a pre-existence in heaven. He is a unique individual that he has always been. And then when he comes to the earth, that isn't his beginning, that is only his putting the beginning of his putting on of human flesh. He was in heaven before that time. He was alive. He was always alive, which implies that Jesus Christ is one of those most unique individuals. He has pre-eternal existence. He is God. He is divine, which leads me to another thought why he's writing in Galatians and saying, hey listen folk, you don't need somebody else. you got Jesus. He's the one in control of history. He's the one who is so great he was pre-existent. He was in heaven beforehand. But then he goes on and he talks about his person of being a holy individual, a divine individual. God sent forth his son. Not only was He pre-existence showing divinity, but His Son showing the idea that we read in other scriptures, the only begotten, the one of a kind Son, the one who shared the same nature with His Father. This, by the way, is one of those few New Testament passages that gives the idea of the Trinity. Look at the next couple verses, or all the verses we just read. You see the Father sending forth who? the Son. And then you read down in verses 6 where it talks in that passage about the Son sending forth His Spirit. Here you have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit mentioned in one text like you find mentioned in several other texts. You go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 1 where God is speaking and He says in a plural sense let us make God in our image. There is a trinity This isn't a multiplicity of gods, this is one God in one person, one God in one but three essences. Here He is. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Agar, prophet who who writes in the book of Proverbs, makes a comment that I'm sure that some of you haven't even marked yet in your Bible. Who has ascended up into the heaven, he asks. Who has descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? He's talking about God. He's describing who's this powerful one. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? He's talking about God. He's describing the abilities of God. Then he asks this question. He's talking about God and he goes... What's his name? And what is his, his son's name? Even in the Old Testament there is reference to this idea of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. Isaiah writes about it. When he writes in Isaiah 48, "...come near unto me, hear this, I have not spoken in secret." It's uh, the messenger. In this passage, it's the servant of God, as he's called in chapters 48, 49, and 50. And he's talking as the servant of God. And he says, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning, from that time that it was, there am I, somebody, this messenger of God, this servant of God, is claiming to be preexistent, to be eternal. And he goes on, he makes this comment, and now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. 3 and 1 there you have Trinity all over in the Old Testament, the New Testament. And Jesus Christ, as we talk about him in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5, he's talking about him being God. God sent forth his son whom he shared deity with. His son who was part of the Trinity comes to this earth. He is going to be a divine individual, a unique individual, the only God-man. And the people in that church of churches of Galatia, they're thinking they need somebody else. And Paul's writing and saying, no, no, you don't need anybody else. Look at his power over history. That's all you need is that one. Look at this one whose, whose person is divine. He's the only one you need. Look at this individual who's, who's a holy individual. He's God. He's, he's God's son. You won't, don't need anybody else. But then he goes on. And the essence of this text brings into the Christmas story. He talks about God sending forth his son. And watch the phrase that he uses in verse 4. He says, at the fullness of time, sends his son made of a woman. This is one of those unique phrases in scripture that is never used to describe anybody else in the Bible. All else, uh, other times in reference, are made of a man or made of a man and woman. But this is unique that this one individual is made of a woman. No mention of a man. Why is that? Well, all kinds of scriptures talk about Jesus coming in the flesh, and I know. There are ever since the New Testament era, ever since around 96 AD, there's been people running around and saying that Jesus never came in the flesh. He was just a spirit or an aura. He was just an emanation of God. He was like an angel's appearance. He never had flesh. And there are groups today that talk about that. Go on the internet. You can check them out right away. There's groups that say Jesus never came in the flesh. He just took the appearance of flesh. But the scriptures is totally against that. The scriptures talks about that if we don't believe that Jesus came in the flesh, first John says we are operating by the doctrine of Antichrist. It makes it very clear: God's Son came in the flesh. Notice a passage. One passage that really developed it. John chapter 1. John one is a phenomenal text in the first few verses. It talks about Jesus and calls him the word, the, the title, the word. And it talks about the word coming in the flesh. But before he does that, he says, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and he was God and by, and all things were created by the word. And so he talks about the word being the one who was God himself with God, the creator of the world. Then he makes this comment. After he's established that the word, the one called the word, is divine. He says these thoughts was made flesh and dwelt among us. There's no doubt Jesus became a man. There's no doubt that God took on the form of flesh that he was he was conceived in the womb of a woman. He was birthed, he grew up, he went through childhood, he went through teenage years, he went through early adulthood. He lived a human life for roughly 33 34 years. He was flesh. God in the flesh, so described in scriptures, and this was predicted years ago, at the beginning of the human race, God speaking to Satan in the Garden of Eden said, I will put a a division between your seed, you and the woman, and between your seed and the woman's seed. Makes it very clear. Makes it very clear. Not just all who are born of the woman, but one particular offspring of the woman is going to be made of her, and this one is going to Crush the serpent's head, though the serpent will bruise his heel, and we understand that though the though Satan got involved with the execution of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ suffered physically, he crushed Satan, gave him a death blow, if you would, by his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, all these things were predicted; they were foretold that God would come in the flesh and even come via a virgin birth. He is unique. He is great. His birth, therefore, had to be unique, different than the rest of us, because He is so unusual. And to protect Him in such a way from the sin nature that's passed on through the parents that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, surrounded the fetus in the womb so that it was protected, the babe in the womb, so that it wasn't tainted by sin. And He was born of a virgin. Several years ago, Larry King was was interviewing Ravi Zacharias, and the Christian uh, apologist. And he was talking to him, and they started taking phone calls, and it was very interesting. Somebody called in from the audience and said to Larry King, they said, Mr. King, if you could interview one person from all of human history, who would that person be, and what one question, if you had only one opportunity to interview one person with one question, what would it be? Without hesitation, Larry King responded, he said, it would be Jesus Christ. And the one question I would ask him is, is it true that you were virgin born? Ravi asked him, Zacharias asked him, he said, why is that? And he said, because if that claim is true, then he is the most unique person, unlike anybody else who has ever come to earth, and he has to be divine. Now Larry King was no theological scholar folk, okay? But he had it right. That virgin birth of Christ made him unique. His coming into this earth, Jesus Christ, phenomenal that he would come in the form of men. Somebody wrote a, a story to try to explain it. And in this story, they make it almost a fairy tale type of a story so that we can understand a little bit better. Once upon a time, there was a very rich, unhappy king. Unhappy because he was all alone in his huge, empty palace. he longed for a wife with whom he could share his life. Then one day, the king saw the most beautiful woman he had ever seen riding through the streets. Inquiries revealed that she was a peasant girl, but the king's heart was captivated by her. He would make sure that each day he rode past her house in the hope of catching a glimpse of the love of his life. But the king had a problem. How would he win her love? He could drop a royal decree commanding her to become his queen. But then he could never be sure he had won her love for she might be obeying just because of a royal decree. Perhaps he could call on her and try to win her over, appear in all of his regal glory and sweep her off her feet. But no, he thought to himself. Then he could never be sure whether she had married him for his power and riches for himself. Finally he came up with the perfect plan. He would become a peasant just like her. That was the only way to truly win her love. So he abandoned his palace, his riches, his comfort and put on the clothes of a peasant. He went and lived among the peasants. He worked with them, shared their sufferings, danced at their feasts until finally he had won the heart of the woman who had captured his. So it is with God. Christ became one of us, lived among us, worked among us, suffered with us, danced with us, all with one purpose, to win our hearts and become our Savior. The parable is true. It's weak in the sense that it doesn't give the full story but it's so profound in that it relates to us this is what Christ is. This is what he has done. He has appeared in humanity. By the way, the passage says he was made of the woman under the law. You know what that means? That he had to do everything that humans experience. Did he experience cuts, bruises, weeping sorrow? Did he experience hunger? Did he experience what you experience? The pains, the agonies, the sorrow of loss, the hurts of betrayal. The emotions of of people that are being your friends and become your enemies. Did he experience poverty? Did he experience generosity? Everything that you've went through, it says that he has also likewise, under the law, been one who had to follow all the rules that mankind has as well as the rules that God has established for people to follow. And unlike us, who we can't even keep ten simple commandments, We violate them in so many ways. Jesus, under the law, comes and lives like us and lives a perfect life. Amazing. Amazing. And then some people come to church and say, I need something more than Jesus. I need to be baptized. I need to join a church. I need to be a good person. Then I can get to heaven because I believe in Jesus and me. And Paul is writing, he says, you don't need anybody else. If you've got Jesus Christ, you've got the one who controls history. If you've got Jesus Christ, you've got the one who's been pre existent. He's God. If you've got Jesus Christ, He's perfect. He's holy. He put on humanity for you. Amazing. That this Jesus Christ, who is so amazing and so awesome, and yet people want something more. And Paul wraps it up by saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is who He is, but let me show you what He did, what He does. And he goes on, and the bulk of this text is talking about his provision of honor that he gives to you and me. It talks about why Jesus came. Oh, just amazing. It says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sends his son, made of a woman, made under the law. That's all his greatness. But look at his great deed. In order that. Hati. so that. For this reason he sent his son, that he was made of a woman, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Do you realize that just by the verbs that he used there, just by the quick reference of what Christ has done, he's making it very clear, Jesus came to help us. Jesus came to to enable us to have life. The word redeem is that same idea that we read in the history about somebody being in slavery, somebody being on the, on the block, being sold, and another individual buying them and freeing them. The, the ones who are redeemed, it says, He came to redeem them. Who's the them? Well, you go back to chapter 3, verse 13. Where he talks again about the redemption. He's already said it. As you you read through the chronology of the book, he's already said, okay, there's been a group of of people redeemed. And in verse 4 of chapter, or 5 of chapter 4, he says them. But earlier he described who the them is. It's us. Where he says to redeem us who are under the curse of the law. Jesus came to help us. What, What he's implying here is this. Jesus came to do something that we couldn't do in and of ourselves. He came to give us something that we could receive something that we couldn't obtain by ourselves. And if you look at the wording by the person who's writing it, we got the great apostle Paul saying, I could not redeem myself. I could could not make myself to be adopted. I, who am an apostle, who has miracle abilities, who has revelation galore, I needed somebody. And it was this Jesus, it was this Jesus who came with a purpose, not just to give us a holiday, not just to give us a school break, but he came with a mission in mind. Literally the word God sent, the word used for sent in the original, has somebody with a really important mission to fulfill. Jesus was sent with a commission, with a mission to fulfill, and it was twofold, to redeem and to adopt. Who? Us who could not redeem ourselves, who could not get ourselves adopted into his family in and of ourselves. Now some of you may be wondering this, what do you mean to redeem me from slavery? I'm not a slave, I'm an American, I'm free, I have my rights. That's true physically. That is true politically. It is not true spiritually. The Word of God makes it very clear that you and I are under bondage. We are under the bondage of sin. That sin at times takes control. That sin at times has us do the things we would not do and do things that, you know, and not do the things we want to do. The sin bondage that we're under, it enables us. It, 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 it controls us sometimes that in our rage and in our temper, we use the Lord's name in vain. In our anger and in our hurts, we strike out at other people. In our greed, We all of a sudden say, I want what somebody else wants. We tear them down because we're jealous and envious. Again, violations of the law. Sometimes that that sin nature that's within us, that bondage, gets us to to lose our temper, gets us to consider illicit thoughts, gets us at times to become extremely self-centered to the point that it's all about me and my way. It gets us to argue in our marriages, gets us to get upset with our siblings, gets us frustrated with our parents that they don't do more for us, gets us angry in our impatience with other drivers or trains here in Lebanon. And that sin nature, it captivates. It can control. It can dominate. It can get us to be, be totally interested in ourselves with moments of generosity that pacify our conscience. But even then, in our pride, it dominates us. And he is writing and he is saying, this is the problem you and I have. Where the apostle Paul said, it was such a dominant force in my life that the things that I would do, I found myself not doing at times. And the things that I, that I didn't want to do, I found myself doing at times. And he cried out in the book of Romans, says, Who shall deliver us from this, this death, this violation of God that separates me from God? Who can rescue me from this? And he talks about it's only through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only one who came to rescue us, to redeem us, to give his life. But then he goes more in this text. And there's so much more to mention when he says, and so that we could receive the adoption of sons or heirs. Whoa! The phenomenal when you think of the culture of that day. He is using an illustration that is so non-American that it goes over our heads. We don't understand it. So put on the sandals and go back into Roman Greek culture to the time where Paul is writing this, where amongst the upper middle class and the nobility, This was a common practice. This was a known practice. Everybody in the culture knew that adoption would happen within a single family where somebody could have several children but they're really not their children until they get adopted. That is so different from us. But it makes sense when you understand their culture. You see, back in the Bible days the children that were born in the homes of somebody who had slaves, the children, the biological children, were on the same par legally. Were often on the same par even relationship-wise as the slaves in the household to some degree. That The, the, the children, the biological children, they could not inherit. In the biological children in many of the nobility, they would not sit at the same table when there was a Christmas feast, uh, whatever holiday they had, when there was a feast, they wouldn't sit with the parents. They were with the the slaves. They didn't have rights legally. They didn't have privileges. They didn't have relationships. In fact, many of those biological children were under the slaves' care and provision and supervision. So he talks in chapter 4, he starts off the chapter, he says with these words, the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he is supposed to be lord of all. He's under the tutors, the governors, until the time appointed of the father. What's he mean until the time appointed? My boys, my girls would have been the same if I lived in those days and had the wherewithal of slaves. They would have been on the same level until a time appointed when I would elevate them to a special relationship, where they would now become my heirs. And I would publicly adopt them. I would elevate them. And he's saying that's the way we are. That's where you and I are at. That we are, yes, part of God's big household, part of creation. He's the father of creation, if you would. He owns all of us. But we have to come to a point where there needs to be a spiritual adoption to really become the heirs of God, to have a relationship with God. And he says that's only provided through Jesus Christ. He makes a point that he says there's a spiritual adoption that Jesus provides. That Jesus Christ came to give his life to redeem us and to make it possible that we receive this honor, this elevation of being adopted into God's family. Yes, we're part of creation. Yes, he's father creator over us all. But that doesn't guarantee us a home in heaven. That just means he owns us. That's just like a slave back in those days. But when he adopts us, when we come to him and we ask him for forgiveness, he adopts us and he elevates us to a new position that we are now his heirs, his legal children. The word he uses elsewhere is the idea of being justified, legally forgiven of our sins so that now we are adopted into God's family and when people look at us back in Bible days if they were adopted into that family they would say, oh now that's their heir. That is their true child. That is the one that's going to get all the benefits. Again, it's something we receive. This is something we don't earn by going to church on Christmas. We don't earn this by giving gifts at Christmas. We don't earn this by putting money into the the red kettle at the store. This is something that only Jesus can provide us. And he makes it very clear that when it happens, there are some phenomenal benefits. Look at the next couple words and phrases. He talks about it almost as if he's making an analogy and a comparison. And let me do it that way. Let's compare adopted children in Bible days to the slaves in that same household. The slaves who the biological children are equal to are underneath until they get adopted. When the adoption takes place the the heirs, the sons, the adopted ones now have more than a master of the household. They have a father. Now the, the terms used are really important. Yes, as as the master, he's providing for the slaves. Yes, he gives them clothing and shelter and, and water and food. But when they become adopted, all of a sudden there's this new relationship. It's an elevated relationship. That all of a sudden, he's able to be called dad. He's able to be called on a personal level, an intimate level, Abba. The idea that all of a sudden when they're adopted, they're no longer living in the household and eating from the food that is owned by the master father, but rather they're invited to sit at the very table and to commune and to have conversation and to sup with the father, with the master, with the Lord of the household. And they can call him dad. And it's a new elevated relationship. It's one that says that that they're no longer poor and impoverished. They are heirs. Everything he has is theirs. Everything. Before the adoption, they're like the slaves. They can live in the house. They can enjoy what's provided. But they really have no future. They really, nothing belongs to them. Nothing is theirs. But God is making it very clear that He's saying, no, no, once I adopt you, all that I have, all the riches are your riches. I provide them to you through Jesus Christ. You now have a hope, you have a future. What did the future hold for a slave? In fact, as I was reading doing some research, what did they do with slaves who became elderly? Some kind Roman government, uh, Roman empire masters would keep them in the house. But frequently those who could no longer provide They were literally put in the fields to expire. What hope did they have? He's their master. He has no commitment to them beyond the fact that they're an investment, and when they aren't able to produce, they get put out to pasture. But if they've been adopted, he cares for them. They have a future home. They have a future hope. They have everything they ever need will be provided. It's all there. That's what he's talking about. And our response should be like the children of old that were adopted. It's no longer out of fear, but we love him, we serve him, because we appreciate what he has done for us. That he took us out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a rock and established our goings. That he would redeem us from our sins, give us the opportunity to be free from the punishment, the penalty of our sins, and elevate us to a position of heirs. Think about this. Think in your mind's imagination, somebody being sold on a slave block, being purchased, set free, and adopted to become the heir of the one who purchased them. What compassion, what grace, what a Savior. Amazing what Christ has done for us. And it's all made possible because what Jesus did. You see this redemption this adoption what Jesus did is described how he did this in the previous chapter go back to chapter 3 in chapter 3 he makes the comment that here's what Jesus did Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law how did he do that being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is every one that hangs upon the tree the simple truth is this that Jesus Christ when he took our Our slavery, he put it upon himself. He suffered the pain. He suffered the curse. He suffered the punishment. He gave his life. He took upon his own, his own flesh, our sins. He who had no sin suffered for my sin so that he could give me some of his righteousness so that I could become a child, an heir of God, and have a hope that is a future hope and be with God forever and ever and ever. That's grace that's Christmas that's what Christ has done back in the 80's some of you might remember the, uh, the um, Alaya family that this became national news there was a girl, 16 year old as you read up there that she developed a form of rare form of leukemia they could do chemotherapy, they could do radiation but they needed a bone marrow transplant parents, they didn't match brother, did not match cousins, did not match there was nobody that matched and without the bone marrow transplant she would die. Her, her future was gone. The parents had been talking about it before they even knew this. They were talking about having another child but the situation prompted them to say let's have another child. The child was conceived born several months later and the younger child Melissa matched her sister's bone marrow. And this child, the babe was able as she grew in the first months and the first years to provide for her sister so her sister's life was saved. Some would say that that child was conceived for one reason and that was to provide life for the sister. And it became a big deal and all kinds of articles talking about the ethics of it. But here's the reality. By analogy, by comparison, Jesus Christ did do this. Jesus Christ was birthed for one reason. He was birthed so you could have life. He didn't come to give you physical life because of a leukemia disease. He came because you and I have a spiritual disease. And He and He alone was the matching donor with pure enough blood that could sacrifice His own life and then cover all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And how did he give that sacrifice? How did he give his life? It wasn't through some medical treatment. It was it cost him his very own life on the cross so that you and I could have life eternal. That's the Christmas story. The Christmas story is somebody came to our reenactment and they were very upset that when we talked with our reenactment that the story of Christmas isn't about a a baby being born, it's about Jesus coming to this earth and giving his life, and the person was highly offended. Very upset that we took such a beautiful, cutesy story and made it so dark. It's not dark that Jesus came to die, it's light. Jesus came to this earth with a mission. He was sent with a mission to give his life in my place and in your place so that we could be redeemed and adopted by God himself. Amazing. Amazing that Jesus would do that for you and me. The bottom line is, he's our greatest gift. There is no better gift. He is the one and the only one. And so Paul is writing to those people in Galatia and he's saying, hey guys, don't go looking and saying, you got go to you gotta go to some church and that church will get you to heaven. It's Jesus. Oh, if you get baptized, that'll get you to heaven. No, it's Jesus. you got to give money and give this and do... No, it's Jesus, folk. It's Jesus who saves. He is the way, the truth. You need to go to Jesus. He is the door to heaven. <laughs> Don't go to the wrong door. Two weeks ago we were down in Williamsburg for the Christmas kickoff thing. And we're getting ready to leave, so I'm, I get volunteered by my wife to load up the car, which is fine. And it's three flights up and down the hotel steps. And so they have, a, they have you know, several steps, a landing, then several more steps. That's one flight. Then there's another one. And so um, I carry down, you know, I'm the pack mule carrying down the suitcases and things and saying, okay, I'll, I'll make several trips. And I go down, and Deb says, well, well you know, we got all packed. I'm going to hop in the shower in the meantime. And so I get the stuff in the vehicle, and I start coming up. And I get up to the room, and I look, and, and I put my key in, the plastic key. And it's, oh, man, they shut it off already. We still got another hour before checkout, but it must have expired. So no answer. No answer at all. I knock some more, and I hear a shower running, you know, through the, hall, the hallway. The bathroom is close to the hallway. So I'm hearing him go, I better wait. Just, I'm going to have to wait until she's done with the shower. So I wait a few minutes, and uh, I knock some more, a little bit louder. And I'm thinking, you know, if there's other people here, I'm probably disturbing other people in the rooms next door, but where is she? And I'm being so patient. So I go, there's this balcony that leads, you know, past the window. So I go out onto the balcony, a walkway, and I tap at the window. And I'm peering through the curtain, tapping on the window. And it's like, where is she? Woman. I mean, wifey. Ah, uh, yeah. Why don't you come? I go back and, you know, it's like she's not coming. So now I'm a little bit more graciously go back out to the window, pound on the window some more. About this time, there's people standing below. <laughs> One of them's pulling out their cell phone, and I think, I'm going to get arrested for peeping Tom. <laughs> so I go back in the hallway and hide for a few minutes, and I pound some more on the door, and I sit down finally and say, I'll just wait here until she, she finally decides to come out looking for me. Yeah, I can pout. And so I'm sitting there, and I look sideways and go, There's another flight of stairs. We're the top floor. Why is there another flight of stairs? (laughs) I don't know if they ever reported me. I don't know if they ever saw me at the window. I don't know what happened. We loaded and got out of there fast. I was, in, I was sincere, I was intent, I was at the wrong door. Yeah. <laughs> you can be sincere and really, really intent, but if you're at the wrong door of salvation, you're at the wrong door. You need Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can redeem you. So where do we go with this this morning? You need to get born again if you've never been born again. You need to accept the gift of Jesus Christ. You need to call upon Him to be your Savior. Ask Him to give you forgiveness and eternal life. He is the only one who can do that. You don't need anybody else. He's the greatest. He's the one. If you have done that, if you can point to a time in your life where you repented of your sin and ask Christ to forgive you of your sins because of what He's done and give you eternal life, if you've done that, you can point to a time, then share that message this day. Give somebody else the opportunity to hear the real meaning of Christmas. And if that is true in your heart that you've done that, celebrate Christ I know it's fun with the gifts, and we're going to enjoy that with the gifts, and we're going to enjoy, you know, the time as family, but celebrate Christ. He is the reason for the season. He's what this is all about. Somebody sent me the story of a woman who was harried and frantic over the Christmas story. Maybe I should read it. It'll be better. Each December, I vow to make Christmas a calm and peaceful experience. I cut back on the non-essential obligations and extensive card writing and endless baking and decorating and even overspending where I say I'm going to and yet I don't. Yet still I find myself exhausted, unable to appreciate the precious family moments and of course the real meaning of Christmas. My son Nicholas was in kindergarten that year and it was an exciting season with a six-year-old. For weeks he had been memorizing songs for his school's winter pageant. So the evening of the pageant, I filed in 10 minutes early, found a spot, sat down, and as I waited, the students were led into the room, each class accompanied by their teacher, sitting cross-legged on the floor. Then each group, one by one, rose to perform their songs that they had prepared. Because the public school system had long stopped referring to the holiday as Christmas, I didn't expect anything other than fun, commercial entertainment, songs about reindeer, Santa Claus, snowflakes, and good cheer. So when my son's class rose to sing Christmas Love, I was slightly taken aback by the bold title. Nicholas was all aglow, as were all of his classmates, adorned in fuzzy mittens, red sweaters, bright snow caps upon their heads. Those in the front row, center stage, held up huge letters, one by one, to spell out the title of the song. The plan was that as the class would sing, somebody would hold up C, as they sang, is for Christmas. A child would hold up that letter, then H... H is happy as the others would sing, and on and on, until each child holding up a portion had presented the complete message, Christmas love. The performance was going smoothly until suddenly we noticed her. A small, quiet girl in the front row holding the letter M, but upside down. Totally unaware her letter was upside down. The audience of first through sixth graders, they started snickering at the little girl's mistake. She had no idea why they were laughing at her. She stood there proudly, holding up her upside-down M. Although many teachers tried to hush the children, the laughter continued until the last letter was raised. And then, we all saw it together. We all caught the real meaning of what was going on. All of a sudden in that instance it became totally aware to us that we understood why we were there, why we celebrated the holiday in the first place, why even in the chaos there was a purpose. Because if you turn the M upside down and you hold it, now it reads not Christmas love, but it reads Christ was love. That's what it's about. Christ was love for you. If you've never accepted his gift, Now is the moment.